Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about blind balancing Hearthstone. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast. On this podcast, we like to talk about games. Even though we haven't actually talked about video games in like a month. Yeah. Because uh, there's been so much going on. And there is more to come every week, obviously. Um... But today we're going to be doing a new experiment, which I call Blind Balancing Hearthstone, okay? So, recent listeners of the pod will know that I've been really getting back into Hearthstone with the most recent expansion, Knights of the Frozen Throne, came out about a month ago, right? Uh, and uh, just at the beginning of this week, uh, at the time of recording, uh, it's like not, like like September 18th, I think, um, uh, a, a patch came in that had some nerfs uh, for various cards that have you know so for various cards in the game right now these nerfs have actually caused a lot of a, a community kind of uproar because even though we can like everyone in the community agreed that something had to be done uh because a certain uh, a certain set of deck types was really dominating the metagame um and and that needed to be tuned back uh the cards that people found to be like that the community found to be problematic were not affected right and plenty of cards that the community wouldn't have thought of being, you know, uh, uh, problematic were affected. So it, it kind of looked a little bit like Blizzard just didn't listen to any of the feedback that people thought of themselves giving, and and went uh, and went a little in a diagonal, right? They definitely they definitely hit, uh, like they definitely they they definitely threw a, threw a punch at kind of the intended mark. But whether or not those nerfs will be effective is kind of uh, is kind of the question now i've been following all of this dutifully i've become a very hardcore hearthstone player in just the past couple of weeks um you know like i'm watching streams i started getting into the esports scene and everything like that and uh, and so and so i'm really into it and i'm really seeing a lot of this stuff but a lot of the questions are also just kind of about what the casual player's experience is of this metagame these nerfs and everything kind of in between right and so because i know mango hasn't been playing very much hearthstone uh in 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 like the, the recent recent times um the question kind of becomes uh, I wonder if I could make the proper cases for these, uh, like for these balance changes, and what Mango would think of them as as a discerning player who knows very little about the kind of uh, the the meta of the meta, almost if that makes sense. So the way that I'm going to be doing this is we're going to go one by one. There are five uh, individual cards that have been nerfed, and then there are a couple of other topics. Um, I'm going to give both a pro, like kind of a, a a pro, like why the argument is to nerf this card in this way right and a con why it's wrong to nerf this card in this way what what those arguments were we're going to see what mango uh we're going to see what mango agrees with also mango if you have any questions about any of the details or the context i would be happy to fill in these blanks um as we go down the line okay so yeah uh, re real quick j just to give the audience context for what i do know i have played a couple of games i'm aware and kind of like the meme sphere general that what is it token and jay druid were the ones that were considered to be broken. I don't actually know what those decks consist of other than, like, basic knowledge that, like, there was that 555 card that everybody was bitching about, and then Jade Golem... <laughs> and, the, like, the, I know what the Jade Golem mechanic is, which is the the ever-increasing... Uh, 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 making, making a bigger man. Yeah. Yeah, a bigger man. Yeah, I saw that meme website, too. Uh... <laughs> uh and uh, what else? Oh, I also know that the nerfs came down the line, but I don't know what those nerfs actually were. I just 
saw somebody post like a, a funny web comic about how everybody was playing druid, and they're just down the line, and no one's playing druid anymore. Um, okay, uh, so and uh, just I, like there are other topics that also kind of have been divisive in the community. So if we blast through the nerfs, we can talk about some of that stuff. Too. Sure, I'm very interested. Um, but to uh, but to to start on the nerfs, right? The first card that got nerfed is Innervate. This is a basic card in the Druid set. It's not even a classic card, right? It's it is it is a card that all players of Hearthstone uh, get when they first kind of like open up the game, right? Right. They don't they don't have to open up any pack to get Innervate. It used to say for zero mana, gain two mana crystals this turn only, right? Now uh, it reads gain one mana crystal this turn only, right? Wow. Um, Wow. So they have cut That's its power by fifty percent. They have they have changed it into essentially the coin, right? This is the coin has a, has an effect like this. Um, so here here are the kind of pros and cons. The pro for the deserve is that Innervate is is thought to be the card that enables all of the cards that are thought to be problematic in Druid, uh, or most of the cards that are thought to be problematic in Druid. Most notably, the five 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 card, which is called Ultimate Infestation. Um, Ultimate Infestation reads: Deal five damage, gain five armor, summon a five five uh, minion. It's a ghoul, right? Summon a five five minion and draw five cards, right? For ten mana. Um, it's the ultimate, like it's the ultimate insane value spell, um, and it and it kind of. Uh, and, and, and anyway, whatever. Okay. Um, and so what people were complaining about a lot of the time was ultimate infestation. But one of the reasons that they were complaining about it was because Druid having access to ramp, right? And being able to ramp so hard um, and having innervate allowed them to play ultimate infestation on turn six or seven. You know what I mean? If they hit their curve right, which just feels incredibly oppressive. Um and so the problem isn't actually ultimate infestation, right? It's that it's that there's this card in Druid Innervate that uh, kind of uh, enables ultimate infestation. So you cut down the power on Innervate, you cut it from two to one, um, and now all of a sudden, um, ultimate infestation, you know, is less of a problem, right? Like the hardcore crazy, you know. I summon, uh, uh, I you know, I summon a, a powerful creature on turn one, right? Um, this is this is also considered a problem um, from a deck called Aggro Druid. Um, what Aggro Druid would used to do was summon a three three monster for three on turn one that has an ability called Adapt, um, which gives it you know Adapt is something that uh, you know it shows you three mechanics. You choose one of them, right? Some of these and all of these mechanics kind of like interface with the card uh itself right like plus three attack gain wind fury gain taunt gain you know can't be targeted by spells or whatever right um and so what an aggro druid could do is they could play this card on turn one when your opponent like even if your opponent has an answer for it they don't have a one mana answer for it sort of thing and so you know uh this card which is colloquially termed flappy bird goes crazy right so this is the pro for why innervate needs to be nerfed the con um is essentially that it completely nukes the card into unusefulness, right? This is just a coin now. Um, the coin obviously is probably one of you know, like it's 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 a card that people, uh, it's a card that uh, that that the player who goes second gets in Hearthstone in order to help them kind of stabilize their curve and allow them to kind of match the tempo that you get out of uh, the first player. Uh, going first, but taking this nerfs it into oblivion. Nobody will ever run Innervate, um, and uh, uh, and 
it's 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 now a useless card that tricks. It's it's kind of like a like a noob trap, right? It's a useless right, card right. that tricks players into thinking, um, into thinking that it's good. At the same time, it's also a card that even though it might enable some of the problematic aspects of druid right like if it enables ultimate infestation in that and that's problematic uh the argument goes that you're kind of bouncing around the edge case right because innervate also allows you to uh you know also allows you to enable right like good and interesting play that we think out of druid right druids ramping into powerful creatures uh, with a card like innervate makes a lot of sense because a card like innervate is card disadvantage in a lot of ways right like you're paying one card in your hand for not a very tangible kind of like effect on the board um so for instance if i'm playing innervate on turn six to cast my eight eight taunt iron bark protector right i'm actually that, that iron iron bark protector is actually two cards right right um and that's the kind of the card disadvantage that goes into it right the argument goes that because it's ultimate infestation has that draw five cards attached to it right um because druid also has nourish which is a five mana draw three cards but also could be a ramp spell if you want it to be um that really the answer is to get rid of some of the card advantage that exists in druid so that if they choose to use their cards to ramp they are paying the kind of uh implicit price of being at, at at a card disadvantage all right so that's kind of the that's kind of the con this is why you wouldn't want to nerf innervate um given those two arguments do you think the innervate nerf is is fair like are, um, you, are yay or nay so kind of off the top of my head i'm going to say yay uh like that that this is the right or this is i understand i feel like i understand why they're doing this and th this feels like because um, Innervate's been around for forever, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, this feels like that they feel like Innervate is kind of a long-term problem that needs to be solved. Like, this doesn't feel like they're solving this problem for Infestation particularly. They're solving this problem for uh, for every... Um, uh, for, for, like, the health of Hearthstone as a whole. Um, I feel like Innervate's the kind of card that, like, you have to make, like, large design choices around for the Druid class just because that ramp is available. Um, and so I feel like them making this choice now is to free up design space in the future along with, um, fixing this, this, like, like essentially, infest, Ultimate Infestation seems to have, uh, uncovered kind of this, this bug in the balance of Druid. And so by fixing this, like, I feel like if you didn't fix this here and you just nerfed Ultimate Infestation or nerfed Nourish or whatever, um, you'd have this problem in the future again. And, and this is the easiest way to, to solve, to solve that. Um, and so from that perspective, like from that perspective, I think it's the, the right choice. I, I see what you mean by like, there are, there are other ways to fix this problem, but I, it feels like they're just more interested in kind of uh, true mana ramp as a druid theme, right? Like, like you know, costs to increase your mana pool in the future rather than, like, like wild, like it's wild growth, right? That gives you one empty mana yeah, crystal. Yeah, yeah, yep. Um, rather than, uh, uh, rather than kind of this mana spike thing, um, which I get. I, again, I, 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 I think it'll be. I, 
I will miss it as oh, for whenever I played Druid, I only ever really played um Mill Druid because I'm I'm a fucker like that. But uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, this seems to be the right choice in kind of the larger design space. Okay, so yeah, so you're with uh, you're with the the devs on this one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right. Um. So, uh. So actually, just to, to like a quick follow up, some of the alternate kind of designs. I mean, I'm gonna kind of kind of go ahead and say that this stuff because the devs chose not to go with this is a little like tangential, right? And I obviously don't want this to be something along the lines of like you know redesign all of the cards, um, or whatever. But you know, um, people have all also suggested a couple of other ways to talk about innervate. Like some people have said, um. Uh, you know, for four mana, gain six mana crystals this turn only, right? So this kind of keeps it out of that, like, turn one or two space where, you know, right at the get-go, you snap your fingers and you have, you know, Flappy Bird kind of thing. Um, or anything kind of along uh, along those lines. Uh, people have also said something along the lines of, like, using Innervate with a cost, like a two mana cost that says refresh your mana crystals this turn, right? So that your empty mana crystals get back to full and you can kind of, like, re replay the turn or whatever for whatever mana cost you think would be fair for that kind of thing. Any of the, Do any of those kinds of designs uh, uh, appeal to you as a, as a way to, to fix Innervate? Um, I was thinking about that. I feel like, I feel like a, a late innervate kind of the, uh, uh, the, the, the four for six is probably the best way to handle it on the druid. Um, that's probably the only thing that, 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 that really makes sense is you can just push, okay. force, force yeah. it to later. The only other uh, thing I can think of is like, if you wanted to move it to, to shaman, you could use it like give it like overload one or overload two and uh that would kind of just like you know borrow from next turn to pay for this turn and that that could balance it but but obviously that's a shaman mechanic yeah um so uh the uh so the developers kind of responded to this idea by basically saying that this is already kind of like a complex mechanic for a brand new player to hearthstone um like the idea that you can manipulate your mana crystals this is something that's really only in shaman and druid and so if i'm introduced to hearthstone by playing mage or warlock this idea is a little bit complicated and they right. want to preserve essentially the learning curve um from um uh yeah from like the bait like the ba because it's a basic card that everybody starts with right that it needs to be kind yeah of simple no, and bare bones that makes sense no what that says to me is like maybe in the next expansion we'll have like innervate two with one of these things that will yeah, also yeah. conveniently rotate out of the space if they want to get rid of it yeah so yeah, okay, definitely. Okay, cool. So the next card, this one has probably caused the most controversy, um, is Fiery War Axe. Fiery War Axe uh, has traditionally been a two-mana weapon for warriors um, that uh, that has three attack and two durability and no card text, right? And it is widely regarded to be one of the best cards in the game just because that amount of stats um, for that mana cost is, uh, is just ridiculously efficient. Uh, it's one of the things that has allowed certain warrior decks to kind of have uh, just like a, like, like a strong enough early game to fight off uh, like the aggro decks uh, of, of kind of the age, right? So, you know, when, when like Face Hunter is a thing, right? Fiery War Axe can kind of stop Face Hunter in its tracks in a lot of ways uh, because it's such efficient removal so early right. in the game sort of thing. 
Uh, the balance decision that they made is that they they upped its cost by one mana crystal uh, to three mana. Uh, so it's now a three mana, um, three two uh, weapon. Uh, the pro for this is that Fiery War Axe has been uh, basically the best weapon in the game. And because it's a classic card, it will remain in the game forever, right? Uh, and that it will uh, just kind of suffocate that kind of design space. There's really no way that you can make an early game weapon for a warrior that's better than Fiery War Axe. You can make a mid-range weapon for warrior that's better, right? Um, we saw this with um, uh, uh, the 4-mana Death Spite, which was a 4-mana uh, 4-2 Death Rattle, deal 1 damage to everything. Uh, we also are seeing this currently with Blood Razor, right? Which is a 4-mana 2-2 weapon. Battle Cry and Death Rattle, it does that whirlwind effect 1 damage to everything, right? These things are really effective they're really good weapons they're played in a lot of decks right now um but the problem with fiery war axe is that it really crowds out that design space early on in the game right you, you can never make a two man you, you can never make like an early game weapon for warrior that will be better than fiery war axe it is an auto include in most decks and um and the community seems to think that it is also like a very oppressive uh a very impressive card right one of the things uh that people talk about um for instance is there was a community hosted tournament uh like with all the pros and everything and the community was allowed to ban cards by votes essentially um to uh to kind of signify what cards they didn't want in decks so to, to to make sure that like the decks were new and interesting and kind of engaging and not stale and just kind of like buy the books buy the meta thing um and the number two card in that with like seven thousand votes was fiery war axe right because it was just in every warrior deck was such a defining card by the way number one was innervate um this was also a while ago this is before jade Druid, any of that kind of thing right so uh fiery war axe is a card that needs to be changed right hearthstone uh needs to have this space open uh and these and these classic cards uh these basic cards are too powerful um uh kind of for uh like for for the health of the game moving forward you know like going on in the future in terms of the meta right now fiery war axe is also uh heavily used in kind of a face deck like an aggro deck called pirate warrior um pirate warrior uses a combination of pirate synergy cards and weapon buffing uh to essentially just go face every turn and you win on turn five or six because you keep buffing your weapons right uh and then you close out the game with like a, an arcanite reaper or you know um or a mortal strike or a heroic strike something along these lines to to, to kind of like get you there and that this hit also hits uh the this hyper aggressive pirate warrior deck that's been around in the meta for a long time um the con here by the way uh to, to just to get a streamer comment on this disguised toast has said that he really likes this idea um because uh he thinks that it's been the most overpowered card in hearthstone um since its inception right uh and that yeah it will probably nerf warrior into being the worst class in the game but that's okay because some class has to be the worst and warrior has been you know really competitive and at the top for so long right uh, the con here is essentially uh, that, uh, and this and this is an argument that comes directly from uh, a streamer named Ali Straza, who also uh, like hosts a podcast, like a Hearthstone podcast. And one of the things that she said is she was like, "Fiery War Axe is kind of what makes up for the fact that warriors have the worst hero power in the game, right? Gain two armor is so bad; it is just like fundamentally the worst hero power. That having really good weapons, and in particular a really good early game weapon like Fiery War Axe, 
uh, is the kind of price you know, it, 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 it's it's the benefit they pay for the price of having the worst hero power, right? You can armor up yourself, you can heal yourself up, so that you can use your face uh, in order to remove cards in the game. And while you're and when you're doing this, um, when you're nerfing fiery warax, you're kind of saying that now you just have the worst early game of any class ever because even your turn two hero power is completely bad and not effective. Uh, is completely bad and not effective at all. Um, some other arguments that have been brought up have essentially kind of been like, without a viable replacement in the meantime, right? Like, it might be okay to say Fiery War X is too powerful, right? Uh, and we need to nerf it to open up early game warrior, like warrior weapon design space sort of thing. Well, this is a better nerf that's handled after the fact rather than during, if this makes sense, right? So if you want to make a card in Knights of the Frozen Throne that's a, you know, that's a two mana, two, two weapon that says, you know, gain plus one attack anytime, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of your minion dies. You know, just like something completely random like that, yeah. right? Something that's good in that two mana slot, but also definitively worse than a Fiery War Axe would be. Without a viable replacement for Fiery War Axe, all you're doing is nerfing Warrior into the ground, saying that Warrior early game can't compete, saying that the two the, the, the two mana slot for every Warrior deck is going to be really lacking, and that, and that place in their curve is going to be garbage, right? Um, and not offering anything to kind of fill that void because you've you've designed around it, right? Um, and so those are those are kind of the pro the pros and the cons. Do you agree with the nerf? Do you do you think a three mana three two weapon is the appropriate thing for fiery war axe? Hmm. That's tough. Uh. I think, like. I think ultimately the change needs to be made. Like, I think the strongest argument against it is that last one you just outlined, which is that you should do it at a time when you're prepared to replace it. Although I am kind of swayed by the disguised toast comment, which is like, you know, every class is going to be the worst or every class is going to be with its worst at the, at some point. And it's not the end of the world for this. Um, so, yeah, I think kind of, Honestly, I think that, like, with replacement, maybe this, this weapon needs, like, even, like, I don't know. For this weapon, needs, like, a harder rework. Like, like 3 for 3, 2 just seems kind of, like, not worth having in the game. Even I, I, I think this kind of speaks to a larger trend. This and Innervate, that, like, the decision to make the classic cards constants was maybe a mistake. Um, especially when you have things like they got rid of Sylvanas. They, they, they have continuously removed things from the Classics pool uh, since they've decided that Classics will always be in the game, and maybe they need, just need to re re revisit that decision a wholesale. And I understand why they don't want to, but, like, maybe even just pair it back to, like, only Basics will be constant or something. Um, yeah, I, know, I, have, I, have, I have a really interesting thing I want to follow up on, and I want to put a pin in that and get to that at the end because uh, that's something I do want to talk about. Okay. But yeah, I, I can't. It it seems all right to me. I obviously don't don't have the, the depth of understanding, um, like from like the kind of casual player perspective. I don't think this is enough. This, this is not so much of a nerf that I think it like tricks, um, new players like Innervate does. Um, like I think I think three for three two is not good or great, but it's still like usable. Um, 
it is yeah it's been compared a lot to there there are actually a lot of three for three two weapons um but all of them have card text that make them yeah. better right you know the an easy example is eagle horn bow right which gains a durability anytime a secret gets revealed on like, yeah, like right, trap right. triggers essentially um and so people are talking about how fiery war axe is now like definitionally worse than all of these cards um so you're yeah. taking kind of the best weapon in the game and turning it into one of the worst weapons in the game uh but also insofar as the meta is actually concerned um people actually typically don't like these three for three two weapons get a lot of play but they very rarely get play for their synergy um a lot of the time that three for three two weapon in hunter like yeah maybe like it's a nice upside if you can proc it with the with a secret but nobody plays around that as a thing right nobody says that yeah like this is only playable when you use the secret is kind of the, the idea. yeah yeah plus i i think i think i disagree with the 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 two armor is the worst power in the game thing i i haven't thought too hard about that but like my kind of gut reaction is that like the ability to gain two health above and beyond your max is useful in a lot of places and it plays well into this kind of weapon dynamic yeah so i like i don't think it's like, yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I, I think this is a good decision. Um, uh, I, I you know barring any conversation about like larger conversations about about the classic card designs. So yeah, I'll, I'll say I'll start with the developer on this one too. Okay. Um. Okay. So the next card is Hex. Right. Hex uh, has traditionally been a three mana shaman spell. Uh, for three mana, transform a minion into a zero one frog. Uh, with, with taunt. taunt yeah. Right? Um. And uh, they have changed it. They have upped the mana cost by one. Hex is also a basic card, you know, included with everybody's game of Hearthstone, right? Uh, transform a minion into uh, a zero one frog with taunt for four mana, right? Um, the pro is polymorph <laughs> four mana. Yes, polymorph is and has uh, has always it's been, been four, four mana. mana. Okay. Yeah. All right. The, the pro for this change um, has been that Hearthstone in general has cracked down on these transform and silence effects. Um, as time has gone on because they are less fun and tougher to uh, kind of um, uh, they are less fun and like tougher to manage than than they otherwise thought right a lot of these silence effects have been uh, uh, you know Ben Broad has talked about removing them right like they added cards with functionality that used to be a kind of about silencing but no longer are uh, because silence is, is kind of like a shitty mechanic um, and it's a tough thing to play around and they don't want you to be able to play around it uh, and they and like they, there needs to be some of it in the game, but they don't want a lot of it in the game, right? Um, and so uh, you know, in the same way that the owl, that two mana two one owl that used to sign stuff, that's now three mana, right? Um, it's just that owl and spellbreaker, which is a four mana four three that can silence other uh, like other cards in the classic uh, in the classic set uh, that's available to everything. There's not a lot of uh, silence stuff that exists except for priest, because um, pr silence is kind of a priest mechanic a little bit. Um, in standard right now you know what i mean like they have they have kind of consistently taken taken a um a taken of stance that says you know what silencing is is really rough uh, is, is is a really rough effect to to play against right and the effect of having one of your creatures polymorphed hexed silenced is is a shitty one and so we want to we want to up a little bit kind of the barrier to entry to getting to that point right 
Um, it also brings it in line with other similar kind of silence effects, right? Silence is a, is a very powerful effect in the early game um, because it really puts a dent in, in kind of aggro, but it is meant to be a control removal spell. Um, like the best silence targets should be thing like Ysera, right? Which is a nine mana 412 that generates cards every turn, right? Or like Tyrion Fordring, right? A six mana or an eight mana 6-6 six, six with Taunt and Divine Shield whose death rattle gives you a fucking awesome 5-3 weapon, right? That's really powerful. So silencing that, getting rid of that death rattle effect, right? That's really, that's really powerful. This is where silence is intended to be used, right? It's, it's kind of like late game power, um... So, uh, uh, so, but removing that from early game power because it, it is such like a huge damper on kind of early game, uh, like, like accepts, uh, or I, I'm sorry, um, so early game effects, right? Uh, is something that is something that they want to do. Uh, the con for this is that Hex has zero play right now in the meta, right? Of all of the decks that made their way into, um, uh, into standard, uh, in, in, or I'm sorry, into the, the Hearthstone Championship tournament, right, which is called HCT, um, none of them, none of the Shaman decks included included Hex. It is very much not used right now, uh, specifically because there is another effect in Standard called Devolve, which is two mana, turn all of your opponent's creatures um, into minions that cost one, into random minions that cost one less. And so you get that same kind of transform effect, but it's like, it's not... You know, take a six-six card and turn it into a zero-one. It's take a six-six card and you probably roll something that's like a five-five. You know, in power sort of thing. Um, so it's like a little power downgrade instead of a huge power downgrade sort of thing. Um, and so if you want to make this change, make it later, right? It has no bearing on the current meta. All you're doing is making shaman conceptually worse in the meta game, right? Um, in case somebody does see, you know, some crazy powerful control threat does see a lot of play and you really want to, and you really want to like hit it all the way to the ground, right? Why are you, why are you making this card worse for shamans to use in its intended kind of use case, right? Uh, so those, that's the pro and the con. Um, what, uh, how, how do you, how do you think? How do you think? Okay, so I'm much more certain on this one. I, I feel like this is a good decision. Uh, this doesn't feel like a professional nerf. This feels like a casual nerf. Um, bringing it in line with Polymorph, um, I don't think it's a terrible thing. I think if it, it's like a functional equivalent to Polymorph now. Um, given that it's not used in the pro scene, I feel like, again, this is this is for new players who get their cool creature out, and now all of a sudden it's a 0-1 frog with Taunt, and that kind of sucks. Um, the thing that kind of, like, I think sets both Polymorph and Hex above and beyond Silence effects is at least with Silence, you still have the bodies on the board, right? You silence a Tyrion, you silence uh, a Sarah, you still at least have a 4-12 and a 6-6, six, six. Um, you lose that entirely uh, with, with with Hex and Polymorph. Um, and so I don't think it's such a, a huge price to pay to kind of like... Um, again, this seems to be a thing designed to like make the game more fun for new players, and I think that's fine. Um, especially if, it, if, if you're saying it doesn't have any effect on the competitive landscape, really. Um, I'm not really up to date on the state of Shaman removal, but they've got a lot of direct damage spells, if I remember correctly. Shaman, Shaman is one of the kind of, like, direct damage classes like that. Yeah. And so, given that, I don't think that... And given the ability to use that for removal, I don't think that it's 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 a huge deal to, to, to take away... To take away... Or to, to lessen the power effects, not even taking it away. Okay, cool. Uh, that one was... That one was easy. Uh, so, the next one... Um, 
is Murloc War Leader. Uh, Murloc War Leader is a uh, is an epic in the in the in the classic set, right? So it's not a basic card; it's a classic card though uh, that is available to everything. Um, that says your other Murlocs have plus two, plus one, uh, three mana, three three, right? Um, it now says your other Murlocs have plus two attack. Um, Murloc decks used to be kind of memey, but now they're actually much, much stronger because they've introduced progressively more and more powerful Murlocs. Um, and Standard is such a giant format at this point um, that there are just like a lot of tools to allow a Murloc deck to actually be uh, pretty good. Murloc Paladin right now is is the best example of that. Um, the uh, but the intended you know, like the intended thing actually isn't isn't necessarily about removing the power from from murloc war leader as much as it is kind of like a clarification and consistency issue with the way that murloc war leader interacts with other uh with other murlocs the plus one health that murloc war leader is constantly giving his other murlocs right that will make weird effects happen um in the game at a pretty consistent basis right so consider a card like whirlwind right whirlwind does one damage to all minions on the board um if i have let's say uh you know a a, a blue guild charger which is a 2-1 murloc right and i have a murloc war leader on the board okay cool my my blue guild hunter is now a 4-2 right let's say that I've, I've traded into murloc war leader efficiently it only has one health left and i cast whirlwind right hypothetically speaking you might intuit that what is supposed to happen is whirlwind goes out it does three damage it does one damage to the blue gill uh, and does one damage to the murloc war leader right the murloc war leader dies and it's plus one health that it is granting the blue gill also goes away which brings the blue the you know the blue gill now has lost one health and taken one damage on the turn therefore it should be dead right um and it also dies but what actually happens is the damage is dealt simultaneously and the murloc war leader dies after that damage has been dealt and the bluegill uh has been reduced to one health when the warlock war leader dies the bluegill stays on the board as a 2-1 the health that it lost was the kind of quote-unquote temporary health that the murloc war leader granted it um, and it didn't affect its base health statistic um in a, in a real way right this has actually affected the way that other classes have options to remove murloc right a lot of uh, a lot of uh mass removal spells early in the game don't do a lot of damage right consecration does two damage to all of your enemies so you know if your enemies are at three health or something kind of along these lines it's possible that um, that murlocs will dodge this because of the way the murloc war leader mechanic works um and so by getting rid of that plus one health on murloc war leader you are you know you are you are getting rid of this kind of confusion as it you know as it exists in the game uh, the con to this is essentially that murlocs are pretty inherently fragile and that you need the war leaders like one health and this kind of tricksy uh uh this kind of like tricksy interaction in order to dodge the mass removal that makes the murloc death the murloc deck essentially essentially worthless right uh murlocs are very offensively statted typically um and without a war leader to buff up their backsides um you get into a position where you're nerfing the deck into unplayable, um, you know, uh, uh, 
because now all of a sudden the early stages of the game it's really easy for you know a whirlwind or a ravaging ghoul or one consecration to completely put a stop to any kind of board uh that the that the murloc player has has been able to put out okay did they say that it was because of the weird health interactions uh yeah so the the okay so the text that they have said um is Murlocs are good at taking an early lead, and if a player can't clear the board in time, the game can ultimately snowball to victory using cards like Murloc Warleader. Removing the health buff from Murloc Warleader will make it easier for players to clear the board of Murlocs and still have it remain a classic build-around card. Simplifying health buff interactions is an additional benefit for this change. For example, in its current state, having a Murloc Warleader in play when using Wild Pyromancer and Equality for context, Wild Pyromancer says... Um, whenever you cast a spell, deal one damage to all minions. Equality is a spell that changes all uh, all minions' health to one. Typically, what happens? You cast the spell. Everything everything's uh, turns into a one health creature, uh, and then the wild pyromancer procs and destroys the whole board. Um, uh, in its current state, having Murloc War Leader in play when using a Wild Pyromancer inequality would not destroy other Murlocs on the board, leading to unclear interaction for some players. Um, they also, by the way, say that we consider changing both Rockpool Hunter and Murloc Warp Leader due to the current strength of Murloc Paladin in early stages of the game, right? So it's, it's both, essentially. Okay. So I think on the, on the, uh, on kind of like the, 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 you know, early clear side, um, obviously I don't know enough about the meta to, to, to talk about how powerful it is, but that, that was immediately what occurred to me. It's like most, most Murlocs have like, a health of around two and so and like most early clear does like two or maybe three with health fire um and so that that makes that makes sense to me that you want to make warlocks more vulnerable to super early clear um that seems to make sense um as a band-aid fix to health interactions like i'm not gonna harp on this too much because what it seems like is they were just like oh and as a bonus we got this but um, that seems like a really shitty justification. That sounds like you need more clarification around health buffs because they are confusing and they are kind of weird. They, they have these weird interactions. Like, you know, you can bounce, like you, you if you have a blue gill charger and it took a damage, you could bounce Warlock War Leader if you've got ability to do that and replay him. And he's back up to 3-2. It doesn't, it, or, you know, 2-1, two, 2-2, two, 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 whatever, 4-2 at that point. Whatever, I can do math. Um, and like, those interactions are all, have always been weird, um, and so if they're really concerned about the the health buff interactions, they should clarify them or rework how that interacts or something rather than just removing it. But from okay. the balance from the balance side, it seems valid. If that makes sense. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I I, I I'm on board with that idea. Um, it should also be noted um, that there is another classic Murloc card called. Jeez, like Cold Seer something. Um, Cold Seer Oracle, the two draw. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, no, 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 no. Not, not, not Cold Light Oracle. Um, it's it. Essentially, what it does is it's a three mana Murloc that comes on the board and gives all your other Murlocs plus two health. Right. Um, that that happens once. Is, yeah, that happens once. It's a battle cry effect. It's not a constant effect, right? And so, essentially, uh, something that other people have pointed out, right, is that you now have Murloc War Leader where, okay, you have a three-mana Murloc that wants to hit the board, and now you hit the face for a whole bunch more damage, right? And you have 
like cold seer whatever um that uh that okay if you're afraid that you know it's turn four and the paladin is going to use consecrate you drop this to make sure that your dudes can absorb that hit uh without without dying essentially um so yeah okay, okay. then we have one final card this final card is the only card that's not in the basic or classic set uh it's a card that just released with frozen throne called spreading plague um spreading plague is part of a kind of uh, a cycle of of frozen throne cards uh around druids uh using uh both one two spiders with poisonous poisonous is kind of just whenever this deals damage to to another minion destroy that minion sort of thing um and one five scarabs with taunt there's a bunch of cards in the set that allow them to either create one twos or one fives uh you know of varying varieties this is the this is the 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 old spraying plague is a five mana card that says summon a one five scarab with taunt if your opponent has more minions cast this again right uh it has now been upped by one mana crystal to a six mana summon a one five scarab with taunt uh if your opponent has more minions cast this again the reason that this card wait, wait, um, wait can you can you say that again i, I didn't quite follow it. It, it, it it yeah it has the exact same card text right uh the card text is just summon a one five minion with taunt if your opponent has more minions cast this again right right so if you're facing off against seven guys and you have an empty board and you cast this you have seven one fives with taunt, oh right, right it changed chains right i forgot that it yeah, changed yeah. itself yeah so it just keeps it just keeps going over until you fill uh, until you you match the board by the way if you have three mana on if you have three creatures on the board and seven guys right you only get four uh right you know, one five scarabs with taunt obviously um, uh, and they have upped its mana uh, the, its mana cost from five to six okay so the reason uh so the reason that uh they so this is what they say spraying plague is a great defensive tool for druid to protect themselves against aggressive decks but it was too efficient at five mana raising the mana cost to six will slow the card down slightly while still allowing for the defensive minion spreading plagues creates to be utilized in the later stage of the game um what other you know there's also a bit here what other changes did you consider we considered changing spreading plague to seven mana rather than six since it's currently the top performing card in jade and taunt druid decks however since we are also changing innervate we decide to only add one mana to the cost of spreading plague right so there's a little bit of context there with like you know uh being able to innervate out uh, a powerful spreading plague to to save yourself against uh an aggressive board it's also a little bit of part of the problem one of the reasons that this card is so specifically problematic is because it's a, it's a very aggressive metagame right um outside of the kind of you know druid trifecta uh where you have jade druid taunt druid and aggro druid um the meta also supports just a lot of really powerful um early like really early game uh aggro you know really early game aggro decks right um so for instance there's there's a there's a website out here that does meta snapshots right and they talk about the different tiers uh of of uh uh the different tiers of kinds of play and you have a, and you have in tier s and tier one um you have uh you have a bunch of druids right and then you have three other decks one of them is highlander priest that's a control deck and then you have pirate warrior and murloc paladin right which are very aggressive decks that get on the board go for face you know try and win by turn five or six right um so 
one of the things that was keeping Jade Druid down in previous metas, though, right? Like, in metas uh, during the Ungoro times, was the fact that it's very weak against both a wide board um, and a fast board. Because you're spending your early turns ramping, you know what I mean? Using your low mana cost cards to wild growth um, and to, you know, like, use Jade Blossoms and get low-powered Jades on the board so that your later game high-powered Jades can hit the board at kind of, like, strong power levels, right? That they just kind of get run over by by pirate warrior you know murloc paladin right um and uh, uh and just kind of bulldoze their way to victory essentially uh, and what spraying plate allowed allowed these decks to do though is that five mana hard stabilize the board and essentially win the game right because a lot of these a lot of these aggressive decks are really built about doing the 30 damage that you need to kill the opponent but now if i get out if i get out of spraying plague that doesn't even have a ton of power right like let's say i only i only get three casts off sort of thing and i only get three one five with chan well now i'm adding an extra 15 health that i need to kind of trample past in order to kill my opponent which in a lot of for a lot of aggro decks is game ending right they just they just can't do that much damage right um and so uh, it really shored up this main weakness in Jade Druid and is the single reason that Jade Druid kind of uh, shot to the top, right? This isn't the only reading of that, by the way. Like, the other example of this is the kind of, uh, you know, uh, Ultimate Infestation allows the Druid to refill their hand even though they're playing all these card disadvantage cards early and so they don't they, they no longer have that weakness of, like, not having the cards to actually use their ramp sort of thing. Um, but it is one of the it is one of the arguments for why Druid became demonstrably literally. By the way, the most powerful class ever in any meta of the game ever. Right, Druid was just winning everything, um, and so uh, and so that's the pro for changing it. The con for changing it. Um, Actually, no. Everyone basically agrees that this card needs to be changed. That's actually kind of uh, uh, honestly, that's that's just it. No one has ever really said that the card doesn't need to be changed. Um, what people have said, however, is that this is actually a pretty bad change for the card. That this isn't going to ad properly address that problem. Right, putting it off by one turn is not going to make a uh, is not going to make a huge difference, especially because druids ramp so hard. Um, and especially kind of like if you do the math around that ramp a lot of the time getting six mana is like easier than getting five mana i don't quite agree with that math but it's what some people have kind of said about this stuff um and um uh, uh and that you know it, it's going to be just as powerful a tool as like making a stopgap um as anything else at the, at the mostly what other folks have said is that actually the card text needs to be changed so that either you limit the amount of uh spraying plagues that go out right so like you know you just have one casted again so that you can only get a maximum of two taunts out there right, right. summon a one five scarab with taunt if you if your opponent has more minions than you do summon another one sort of thing um or you nerf the stats on those scarabs, right? Um, some people have said that one fours would be fine. Uh, one threes, uh, honestly, on the podcast I was listening to where they were talking about the nerfs, um, one of the players essentially kind of said, anything more than a one two scarab with taunt makes this card in insane. It will always be insane at one five just because of the multiplicative nature of the card, right? You have to put creatures down, right? That that buy you a turn otherwise it's too good right and it's just too efficient 
um for, for kind of for what it does so the question kind of becomes um do you agree with the developer's version of the nerf right that innervate plus one mana crystal on top of uh on top of spreading plague is going to bring it enough in line um or i guess the or, or are you kind of more in line with some of the other versions uh where it needs to be nerfed harder to bring uh to bring druid down are the scarabs poisonous no no the scarabs okay. are not poisonous they're one five scarabs with taunt okay you mentioned poisonous earlier and i was yeah. i was confused for a second um hmm so what this seems like this wants to be is actually like less it if it's too strong to be an aggro wall which is what, it, what it's acting like now it seems like it wants to be kind of like a big creature deterrent and at that point i don't think the mana cost uh solves this right like the, the one five says that it, it's there to kind of like have enough oomph to like stop mid-range stuff um and that's always gonna fucking put down uh aggro at like any level um uh so yeah I kind of, I, I think I kind of, uh, I agree with the the people on the on the con side, like that this is not a good nerf, um, uh, cause, uh, I mean, if we assume it puts it off another turn, but in a ramp deck, I don't still don't think there's enough time for it. Like, I think you can make the argument that putting it off a turn can be the difference between life and death for mm -hmm. uh, an aggro deck. But it doesn't seem like it's coming at the right turn for for a ramp deck, right? Like, like I feel like if you were actually pushing it from turn five to six, it might work. But it seems like from what you're saying, it's pushing it more from like turn like five. It's instead of turn five to six, somewhere in like the four to five region in an emergency. Um, and at that point, I do think you need them to be like one three or one two. Um, I think there are other ways that you could target the card to make it solely be kind of like a hold off the giant creatures for another turn. Um, okay. Which would be something like, you leave them at 1-5, but only replicate on, like... Only replicate for every minion above a certain mana cost or above a certain power level or something. That way you can, uh, you know... That way you can't chip through them with, like, your weenies. But you can, like, uh, you know... You do hold off the giant monsters for another turn. Um, or you can chip through them if you have enough weenies, but, like, you, you, you kind of hold off, like, the... The Legion of Doom for another turn if you you're waiting for like something to go off, right? Um, but I don't I, I I don't think a five to six increase does the thing that they want it to do. So I'm gonna side with the the the, the critics on this one. Okay, cool. That's it. That's definitely uh, that's definitely neat. That's definitely interesting. I guess. Um, I think. Uh, Buddy, how do you feel about all these changes? Since since we we've gotten your reports, but we haven't gotten your your, your personal feelings. That's true. I actually, I, I tried really hard to keep my personal feelings out of it because I wanted to kind of keep that bias away from it. I'm actually pretty okay with the lion's share of the nerfs. Um, specifically, I think Innervate, um, Murloc War Leader, and Hex make a lot of sense. Um, I, ha I have a certain amount of problem with the Fiery War Axe nerf. Uh, I do agree. Uh, that um, uh, I, I basically agree with the idea that like if they wanted to nerf this card, they either needed to wait on nerfing it until they had a good replacement for it, um, or um, they uh, they they could have made it a little bit better by just giving it some basic uh, card text. I also, by the way, think that a two mana two two weapon would have also been very fair. 
uh, and would have been a fine weapon that would have been that would have been good. Like the problem with okay, so like here's the thing, right? The problem with a three mana weapon is that now it's also too close in the curve to the four mana weapon slot, which is where other good weapons exist, right? Like right. I was just talking about Blood Razor, right? Which is a four mana weapon, or it's a four mana two two weapon that when it hits the board it whirlwinds, and when it dies it whirlwinds. And that's really powerful, right? That's like effectively two swipes basically. Um, but the thing is, is that like. Because now I have to wait a turn to play my fiery war axe, the amount of time, and I can only have one, I can only have one uh, weapon up at a time, right? The amount of fiery war axe overlapping my my kind of blood razor turn is uh, that's that's very bad, right? right? And then having a two mana two two um, would allow you to still play this this card on turn two, still take out a two cost minion, right? Do some damage, maybe combine it with the, you know what I mean? And it gives you and it gives you a little bit of like. Um, so like maybe you you play the war axe, hit something with three health, and then a tur like two turns later, you know you play the blood razor. Its battle cry finishes it off. Something along those lines, right? That that I think is the ideal change, uh, and I think three mana three two uh, is uh, is not is not ideal. I also am very I am also very partial to this idea that warriors do have just a god awful. Um, uh, they have they have a god awful uh, hero power. Uh, for the early game specifically, like I, th I think in terms of control matchups, it's actually a very good hero power. And in fact, my favorite deck at the moment, which is essentially a fatigue warrior deck, um, where you just gain ridiculous amounts of armor. You would love this deck, by the way. It's called Dead Man's. Do you know about Dead Man's Hand? You 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 linked me the deck list, but I never actually read it. Okay, I'll, I'll explain this in a bit. But anyway, the point is, like, uh, you know, like, it, it's specifically a, just an awful early game card. And on top of this, Warriors have actually seen the most nerfs of any class um, inside of their kind of basic card set. Because uh, also in the past, we've had the Charge spell get nerfed, um, which was a which was a, a low cost spell that you could use to give a minion charge. Um, we've had uh, the um, uh, the what's the charge forward card god warsong commander nerf that card nerf was nerfed into oblivion it used to be one of the best cards uh in in the in basic hearthstone and now it's just one of the worst um essentially because of that the whole interaction with grim patron and everything along those kinds of lines uh and so now if you're a new player and you know you have no cards and you want to walk in and play a uh and play a warrior deck you're really kind of shit out of luck because uh you, all of the cards that you walk into are are not great uh, and then I also agree with you. I think I think the spreading plague nerf is just not enough. Um, they really wanted to keep uh, they were they really wanted to keep this cycle of one five scarabs with taunt um, for you know a bunch of cards create them uh, the 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 hero power for Malfurion uh, like it creates them and stuff like that. Um, I'm sorry, not the hero power, the hero card for the Death Knight now Malfurion creates them. And so I think, like, they like this stat line. They like that these tokens are kind of the default token um, and that it's similar to all the other ones that create 1-5s with taunt. Um, but I am very much in agreement that you you either need to cap the amount that it will summon, right, or just accept that this card is going to be create, like, create crazy unless you make it 10 fucking mana. Like, you know, it's just so, it's just so strong. It's just so good. Yeah, no, that, that feels fair. Um, yeah, did, yeah. Did, did we want to talk about classic cards? Because every, everything I have heard from this, um, except for maybe that last one, tells me that classic cards need to constantly in the meta need to not be a thing. Um, uh, yeah. So I do have, uh, I do have a little bit. Uh, um, 
I, I have the same kind of problem. Essentially, what uh, what Ben Brode has said is he says, you know, they, they definitely want classic cards to exist, and they want classic cards um, to provide some stability so that anytime a new set comes out, right, there are, uh, there are cards, you know, like, let's say, and this has happened to me, right? Let's say I walk away from the game and I come back after two or three expansions, which is true. I mean, I walked away yeah. from the game for about a year before coming back. Um, you still have the basic set to draw on and it's cards to draw on in order to make your decks and you don't need to just like you know spend hundreds of dollars opening up knights of the frozen throne packs in order to make effective decks right, right? okay that's, that's fair yeah i think that's a, and i think that's that's important i think that's why these need to be in here um, but i do think that the best a, the, the best answer for this stuff is the hall of fame method that they've been using which is essentially at the turn of each new year um certain cards uh last year it was conceal uh sylvanas uh ragnaros uh Icelands, right certain cards get rotated into the hall of fame so that they cannot be you know like they can't be used in standard anymore uh just because they're too good or too you know kind of whatever or they you know crowd out a design space right um any kind of like any of the in between of all of that of all of that sort of stuff so how does the how does the Hall of Fame mechanic work? Is Sylvan, does that mean like next year Sylvanas comes back or is, it, or is she permanently retired? No, she's she's permanently retired. Okay. I've always I have actually always thought that they needed to add a a second aspect of this where certain cards get backfilled into the classic set uh, in order to fill those slots. Yeah, no, no I, I actually <clears throat> I actually think that they should just straight up copy Magic, um, the Gathering, um, and you know with each set that comes out. Pick, re-release some cards from older sets because you know I think there are cards that were good in gnomes and goblins that could make a reappearance. Yeah, definitely. Actually, um, yeah. Um, and stuff like that. Um, and you know, for a while, Magic did the whole like every third set was a base set that was like core cards, and they got rid of that because they didn't like that either. Um, but I I feel like kind of like limiting this to like the classic set is 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 not great either like i understand the desire to want to make at least a lion's share of them come from the classic set that way you know i can guarantee that everybody has at least something to play but i think kind of opening the doors on what they're what they're willing to pull into the kind of like uh you know old cards that are that are still in would be beneficial to kind of making this sting less yeah i definitely think that so so i i agree that they should kind of copy the blizzard model but in a very specific magic way. model uh i'm sorry the magic model you're right um because uh i the, the the reason that magic actually discontinued that is because those sets never sold the point of the set is that everyone owned those cards already or most of those cards and so people weren't buying boxes you know what i mean and so what blizzard has essentially done is they said okay well if that's the case right we'll just have it be legal forever so you know what i mean like it's still important to have this kind of baseline so that anybody can kind of walk back into standard and still have some cards that are usable right um but we're not going to try and get people to rebuy um, you know, whatever, you know, like whatever it is, we're not going to get them to rebuy Sylvanas every year because that's just, that, that's not a great business sense. Um, right. essentially what I think they should do is they should be, first of all, they should be more aggressive with the hall of fame. I think that they should pull out, you know, last year they pulled out five cards. Um, but, uh, next year I feel like they should pull out like 
15. You know what I mean? They should pull a lot of cards out of the classic set. Um, but the thing is, is that they should, they, if they pull those five cards out or 15 cards out, they should put 15 cards in, right? Choose 15 cards from the, that are about to rotate out or that are currently in wild or whatever. You know what I mean? And add them in for the, for the year and say, you know what? We're going to bring back piloted shredder. We're going to bring back Dr. Boom or, you know, you know, whatever. Oof, boom. The right return now, of right? boom. The return of Dr. Boom. <laughs> but I think that that's actually kind of the point, right? Like, Dr. Boom rotated out. And so, he, like, this incredibly powerful seven, you know, Dr. Win, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Dr. You know, Skill. Right, yeah. Dr. Skill, right? Like, he rotated out. And so you you allow yourself to make the, to make these kinds of big, splashy changes by saying, you know what, we're going to rotate out Ragnaros, the best 8-drop we've ever printed, right? That will forever be the best 8-drop, you know what I mean, in, in Hearthstone, basically, right? So now your 8-drop is going to be weak. But we're going to rotate back in Sylvanas, right? And say... Yeah, if you want to play a really, you know, like now the 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 mega powerful slot is now going to be a six drop, and and that allows you to futz with kind of deck types, right? Because all of a sudden you're kind of saying, well, you know, if I'm a paladin and Ragnaros crowds Tyrion out of every single deck because they both kind of fight for that eight eight slot finisher, like eight slot legendary finisher in every deck. Well, all of a sudden Tyrion gets really good, right? But if you know Cairn Bloodhoof has been a six mana card that has kind of been like your six mana super powerful legendary game winner sort of thing um, that that le that allows you to control the board um, uh, in that mid-range sense. All of a sudden, that gets really bad. Savannah Hymane gets really bad, right? And I think those kinds of interactions would be, uh, would be much better served by kind of picking and choosing how you rotate out inside of each year in standard uh, much more aggressively. To be honest with you, I actually think that this should happen on, on an expansion by expansion basis um mostly because the meta gets kind of stale kind of quickly because you know new cards get released every four um you know every four months or so um and some of them get incorporated into decks that have already existed right spreading plague and ultimate infestation got incorporated into jade druid which was a deck archetype that has existed you know for a year already um but uh uh you know uh it, that that's the thing that kind of catapulted it to amazingness essentially um so i, I anyway my so that's kind of my that's my thing is i feel like if you rotated cards a little bit more proactively um uh and a little bit more aggressively into what is standard into what is uh, uh into what is wild i think that you would get a you would get a lot more churn and a lot more turnover on what decks got played uh in any individual kind of tournament sort of thing yeah, um, I think just I kind of got cut up on it. Like I think that like bringing back, no, not to like harp on this example, but Doctor Boom was so meta defining. Like I think you avoid bringing back those cards, like the ones that are like like once this passes, I don't think Infestation ever comes back in, um, Ultimate Infestation, whatever that card's name is, because it seems to be very meta defining. Doctor Boom never comes back, and you see it's very meta defining. I'm sure you could point to some other cards that like were just. <coughs> excuse me uh too good that always got rotated back in or that, that, that would rather that they were always played so they, they don't get rotated back in just because they're, they're, they're too, I actually, too strong yeah, i agree with you a lot on that and i think that there have also been powerful cards in the past like in, in goblins versus gnomes um that would have really cool interactions with current cards in the meta 
Um, so, like, for instance, uh, Warrior right now, like, they've been pushing a lot of cards into this kind of, like, self-damaging archetype, right. you know, that they've always kind of had, like, with enrage mechanics and stuff like that. Um, like, for instance, the Warrior Legendary is uh, Rotface, which is an 8-mana 4-5, but every time this, this card survives damage, you summon a new Legendary minion or whatever so being able to deal a bunch of you know like a, a, a bunch of instanced damage to rot face is actually kind of good right um and a card like bouncing blade which was never played in goblins versus gnome but does one damage um and repeats until a minion dies sort of thing yeah there's a version of it where you drop rot face on the board and then you play bouncing blade and i don't quite know if this is the interaction um but it just keeps hitting rot face until he dies and you summon five five legendary minions it, 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 would, it would hit awesome the other creatures because because that's how it worked with um with uh uh grim patron Gr yeah grim patron okay that actually makes sense i wasn't sure how how like the trigger would work so i wasn't sure if it would all trigger at the end or in the middle of the cast but in the middle of the cast is fine too you know what i mean yeah. um because now you're summoning you know kind of kind of more things uh and a kind of 10 mana summon five cards comp or summon five legendaries combo is also ridiculous uh but would be awesome yeah so I, I, think, but I, I, I feel like, like that that's also cool. what wild's for right like mm -hmm. you could go build that dick and wild right now and I, I feel like that's part of what that's for yeah um although i understand the the, the idea that like you could do some I, I think like the crazy things are supposed to be for wild i think the like the neat things i think you could bring into standard is that so so you've been playing this this uh what it repulse darkness now what is it renounce, renounce Dark darkness, darkness which is the warlock card that changes all of your shit yeah uh, uh, so are you playing that in wild or are you playing that in standard oh it's standard it's a still oh, okay. standard card yeah um it was basically a car a deck that i could throw together with like minimal thought it's like put a bunch of like cards that give me draw advantage so i draw renounce darkness make sure that most of my cards are warlock cards so they get switched into a random class card and then like ride ride the fucking lightning and hope that it works out <laughs> does it work out um, more often than it should, but less often than it needs to be to be, like, a real deck. Like, it, I am surprised at how often it works, but I can't, I'm not gonna get to Legendary off of it, so. Fair enough. Yeah, I've actually gotten pretty far. I'm, I'm up to rank 14 with that Dead Man's Hand Warrior deck, uh, which I do want to explain a little. I guess now let's transition into our weeks. Um, so, I've been playing a lot of Hearthstone, fucking who knew kind of thing, um, the uh, um, uh, the deck that I've been playing a lot of I've been playing so uh, so warrior's always been my favorite class which is part of why I'm I'm butthurt about this fiery war axe change um, and uh, uh, th there's this warrior deck that came out that's called dead man's hand warrior and essentially what it uses is a card called dead man's hand which says it's a it's a two mana cost spell shuffle a copy of your hand into your like copies co copy all the cards in your hand and shuffle them into your deck essentially right. If you have two Dead Man's Hand, well, all of a sudden, you never have to deal with fatigue. You can go infinite, right? Because you copy a copy of Dead Man's Hand, it goes back in your deck, eventually you draw it, and you copy it again. And so what, what the Dead Man's Hand deck does, right, is you draw the whole deck, essentially, and then you choose a couple of cards. Um, Cold Light Oracle is one. Uh, execute um, a card that called Sleep with the Fishes that does one damage. Um, to, there, sorry, that does three damage to every damaged creature. Uh, shield block, you know, gain five armor, draw a card. Um, a card called Bring It On, which is two mana, gain ten armor. Um, all minions in your opponent's hand uh, reduce their cost by two. Um, and so you pick and choose from a couple of cards, and you make a very small 
custom deck and you just keep repeating the same things over and over again uh, until you put your opponent into fatigue and and beat them with fatigue, right? And the, and the deck has so much card draw and then like board clear uh, and like removal and armor gain that essentially all you do, right, is you, you clear the board you clear the board, you gain armor so that when you can't clear the board, things hit you, you, you you're not dead, right? You, you don't you don't die kind of in this like early phase. And then you just draw through your, your opponent's entire deck and you essentially kind of say, everything in your deck was not good enough to, to beat me. <laughs> it's just the most fun. I, it's, it's some of the most fun I've, I've ever had in Hearthstone. Um, specifically because you can get into some really weird places in that end phase of the game, um, where you're trying to figure out, okay, do I cat, like, like I'm at 12 HP and I have one bring it on, right? Do I copy this? And do I save it and copy this? And I try and hold out until I can, you know, fish for my dead man's hand or whatever, or I can draw it up a little bit later sort of thing. Um, or do I, or do I burn it now? Right. Do I burn both executes or do I have to save one for the end game sort of thing? All of these questions kind of mean that the deck is incredibly reactive and you're playing about, you're kind of playing against what your opponent is playing. Um, so much so that I just find it so fun and interesting. And it's probably... I never played Grim Patron Warrior um, because I didn't like it. I just... I, I didn't like the math warrior, essentially. Um, that, that whole archetype existed before Grim Patron, to be honest. Um, but it feels... Uh, it, it feels kind of a little bit like uh, playing that kind of deck in a lot of ways. Um you know, like, re it's, it's a really skill-intensive, or, like, Miracle Rogue is another good example of this. Uh, it's just, like, a really skill-intensive deck where you have to make a lot of decisions about how you're going to interact each turn. Uh, and it's basically, like, single-handedly got me to, like, continue playing Hearthstone. <laughs> nice. Awesome. But uh, so, uh, but so, yeah, what have you been playing this week? Um, besides the standard amounts of PUBG, um, I actually get my toes into Divinity 2. Um, which is a very neat game. Um, I like it a lot. I, I, I kind of sat down and I was like, I'll play this for a little while. And then it was 5am. Um, wow. it's, it's a very compelling CRPG. The, the writing's pretty neat. Um, there's one, one thing I kind of want to focus on in particular here. Um, cause it's an interesting decision to me, but it also was kind of like, I'm not sure I like it. Um, you can build a custom character if you would like. Um, or you could pick a character that's called an origin character, um, which um, they're characters with preset personalities, like uh, preset backstories, or whatever. And they have a, they have a name, a race, and a gender. Um, and but you can customize everything else about them, right? Like your uh, you, the one I'm playing is Beast. He's a he's a dwarf um, who rebelled against the queen dwarf. Um, something there's more nuances there. Um, and, uh, like, you, but I can customize everything about it. I can customize his appearance. I can customize his class. They don't have to play with the defaults. Okay. Um, which is cool. But the thing I'm not so sure I like is that, um, the origin characters all have their kind of backstory. Like, they all have their, their own quest lines. Um, and if you play as one, you have access to that quest line. But if you play as a custom character, you don't. There's not, like, a generic... Like, there is a overarching plotline, right? There's a regular one, but it's not like there's something that slots into, like, the the uh, the origin character 
quest line. It's, you know, just you don't have access to that content. You can still recruit a character to your party and play their quest line that way. Um, but um, I feel like there's like a pressure there to to get you to pick an origin character because, you know, that's just kind of content left on the table, essentially, if you don't, especially if you were going to play something of that that race class or that that race gender combo anyway right if you were going to play uh a a male dwarf why not play beast um and the answer there could be things like maybe you're not in tune with his backstory right like one of the other ones is the male lizard man is named the red prince um and he's got a whole thing but he's also kind of an asshole um and like maybe i didn't want to play an asshole blizzard person um but it kind of feels like i'm leaving a bunch of stuff on the table um if if I didn't pick an origin character, so I'm not so sh so sure. I'm super kind of down with that decision. I'd feel a lot better about it if it was like if you like if there was like a a random kind of uh, uh like you know normal person uh like you know like non non origin plotline that you couldn't get from any of the origin people. Also, they're like custom dialogue options that you can't get. That, that you know that uh that the origin characters get um that you can't get from uh from your custom characters so so oh wait okay so essentially what you're saying is that there's a a, a a it's it's almost like a it's almost like a class hall quest i guess in world of warcraft does that make sense kind but of for yeah. each of the origin characters but there's not one if you choose to build your own yes and so that content is locked out from you uh, yeah, whether I'm, or not that's bad. Yeah, so you could you so you could play so you could theoretically recruit the character to your party and play their cut like their effectively. Oh, in your, interesting. Um, okay. But but the difference there is there's it's a four man party and there's more than four of them. So like to get the maximum number of those quest lines, you recruit four. You, you play one and then you recruit three others and then you can play through four of those quest lines, um, in a playthrough, right? And so I guess the difference is between three and four rather than one and zero, but it's still kind of like. A consideration that I'm not as uh, I'm not as happy about. Um, I fortunately I really like Beast. Like Beast kind of Beast is a pirate that opposed his tyrannical queen, um, and that's why he's persona non grata. Um, and that really fits. Like that that is an excellent thing for me to play. Um, I think the thing that really chafes me more is is kind of the the custom or not the custom but like the specific dialogue actions right like as beast there are t there are specific dialogue options that you have with other dwarves because you're kind of like you know everybody knows who you are you're that guy that tried to overthrow the queen um which obviously you don't have access to as as a custom player um a custom character um and then th th that's uh that's that's kind of kind of where I, like I, I don't necessarily think it's bad i just i just don't feel great about it like you know um it, it just doesn't sit quite right with me you know i have to say that i think this is so because i actually really like the model in a lot of ways for instance like i'm a big i'm a big defender of the class hall quests in world of warcraft and they kind of got torn to shreds a bit um, in uh, in patch 7.2, because one of the things the developer talked about was uh, the developers, the like the, the group of developers I guess talked about was uh, like the class hall quest because they made 12 individual quest lines um, that took up a lot of content. So when people were saying, and so they they 
They kind of bragged that 7.3 was the biggest patch that they had ever done. And then people were like, well, where's all this content? And they were kind of like, well, it's spread out over 12 different quests. You got to play all the quests to see all the fucking content sort of thing. But I actually think that's kind of neat. It really, like, ups replayability. And uh, and uh, that's one of the things that's kind of kept me going and wow um, uh, a lot. Um, but I think you're right, mostly because this is the worst kind of place for it. The, here's the thing that I think is bad about it. I think it's trying to have its cake and eat its to, and eat it too. I guess um, when it comes to this stuff, um, the the idea that there's a short term RPG that I could play through with ten different characters and ten different quest lines, right? Maybe let's say like the game is five hours end to end, right? But it changes pretty dramatically based on what quest line. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're on it, and so in a way, you're kind of buying ten games. Right, right. For, for one, but they're each a little bit of like an Elseworlds tale, and maybe you could do some like neat thing with kind of like these, you know, um, like like these different storylines interacting in certain places, right? That that's a, that is a lot of appeal to me. I think that's awesome, right? And in a world where people kind of define themselves around really high, you know, playtime numbers, right, where I want to get a hundred hours of playtime out of out of a game, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me that somebody would say, well, why don't we recycle some of our content, split that up into 10, 10 hour you know, kind of chunks and we'll get, and we'll, and we'll get there by, by kind of dodging and weaving things. And, you know, people play through, um, you know, pl play through the same thing 10 different times, 10 different ways. Uh, and that'll be cool and interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, um this, this game is not that long though. This game, this is a long game. Yeah. That's, uh, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the thing that frustrates me. Right. Is that it feels like, you know, I'm not, what it's telling me is that this is a 500 hour game because there are 10 quest lines and each one is 50 hours long and the lion's share of what you're going to be doing is the same shit that you've yeah. already done. This has actually kind of been pulled into stark relief for me because I've been playing um, XCOM 2 uh, and I've played through, since like War of the Chosen came out, and I've played through three, through three playthroughs um, at the time. Uh, and one of the things that I was listening to Total Biscuit talking uh, on his podcast about it is he was talking. He was like, "Don't be afraid to lose a, you know, to like lose a game and start over, sort of thing." Um, and uh, because you know, like you're gonna learn a lot and you're gonna get better or whatever. Uh, and uh, and that you know, and that happened, right? I am much deeper in my third playthrough than I was in my first two. But it was an incredibly frustrating experience because uh, I was playing Iron Man. Um, uh, it was an incredibly frustrating experience because I was playing Iron Man. And all of a sudden, my best squad gets kind of, like, wiped out. One of it was kind of RNG bullshit. The other one was kind of because I made, like, a pretty poor tactical decision and it snowballed out of control from there. Um, but, like, now all of a sudden, that playthrough was entirely ruined. You know what I mean? And I was hit by that kind of XCOM learning curve of, well, now my squad is all fucking rookies and I just hope to God that, like, I can get enough grenades that they can, like, all die or something. Um, sort of thing. Um... And I eventually had to restart because I just, that, that wall wasn't, but like there wasn't a good way for me to kind of, um, like there wasn't a good way for me to kind of pick up at a checkpoint essentially. Um, and that's what the save system is for obviously. And so my third playthrough, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I, you know, I don't need this Iron Man bullshit. This game is dumb. It's not built for Iron Man. I'm so mad. Uh, and so, uh, I've been playing, uh, I've been playing like a regular save state game, but doing my very best not to save scum. Um, which is just a discipline sort of thing. 
but it's, but it's put into stark relief this idea that there's o- there's only a certain amount of content that I'm willing to do in XCOM. I played that opening three times, and the second and third time I was just skipping through. I was like, "Come on, this is I've been through this already." Is right? there not a way to skip it? There's a way to skip it in uh in the first yeah. There's a, there, so I'm not I'm not so I'm not even talking about just skipping like the intro quest, right? I'm talking about skipping intro research, oh, uh, yeah, intro yeah, yeah. enemies and all this other kind of stuff, right? Like, I've been through this sort of stuff before. Um, and there's kind of this fantasy about games that you can make a game that has, like, infinite content and will always be, you know, something that you'll come back to um, and put hours and hours in. And, yeah, I guess maybe... Like, with enough kind of RNG, you can make that the case. Uh, or, like, enough kind of, like, small drip, drip, drip kind of, like, content injections. You can make that that the case, right? Like, I understand how somebody could get thousands of hours in a game of Civ Five because, as is, you know, uh, uh, as is well quoted, right? A game of Civilization has nothing to do with the players and everything to do with the map. And insofar as that map is RNG, right? Like, you know... That that it, it's a new game every time, sort of thing, right? But I just think for games like XCOM, uh, there are and and you know for Divinity Original Sin or whatever, um, there are just really hardcore lifespans on these things that people don't like recognize, and that's a problem. This is actually the problem that's kept me out of so many of these CRPGs. Uh, because I always do this thing. This has happened to me like four times by now. Where I get into the CRPG and I'm into it. And I'm, in, I'm maybe like three or four hours in. And I tr- and I do... I try and test the boundaries a little bit. But I go a little bit too far. And things just spiral out of control from there. And then all of a sudden I'm just like, oh, this is... You know, I don't have to go th- play through the the whole intro section of things again that happened to me with the very first divinity original sin because i ended up killing the very first quest giver because i just wasn't sure i just want i was just like dicking around essentially and then i found out that like the most recent checkpoint was the beginning of the game and i was like well i'm never playing this again uh fair enough um funnily enough this game also has an iron man mode um which is like the top difficulty I did that's, not. That's, that's the other thing. I always pick fucking Iron Man when I see this shit, and I really shouldn't. Yeah, no, I... Because it was a top difficulty, I didn't. I was like, maybe I should do this. And then, like, I, like... And then I was like, uh, maybe not. And then I, like, played, like, the opening, and, like, it died almost instantly to something stupid. I'm like, glad I didn't do that! Um, uh, and, you know, I've been doing... I've been trying to do my best to not save Scout. I've been pretty successful with that. But, um, I do want to say that the game is actually really excellent. Like, um... Some of the things that it's done that, like, you, I just haven't seen before are things like, you know, in most games, your companions are of, like, a specific class. But, like, you know, oh, no, I want, like, these two characters that are my favorites, but they've got a lot of overlapping skill sets. That's not the best. This game, the characters, when you ask them to join, are like, well, I'm a wizard, but I'm also pretty good with the sword. What do you want me to focus on? You could basically pick whatever class um, you want your followers to be, uh, okay. which which is pretty great. Um uh, and so I, I really like that because you can get all the characters, like all the characters that you think are the most interesting, um, without, um, uh, losing anything. Um, there's also kind of like, it's the game's pretty good about like, you know how like games break at like the edges when like you maybe sequence break something yeah. or, or like, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you use something slightly, uh, slightly out of order or like, uh, you know, maybe they'll conveniently ignore one party member or something, uh, and then 
for like the purposes of a conversation this game's really good about like staying pretty consistent there are some holes in it and it's got a little bit of jank to it there's some um not everything's perfect um but uh it's actually really kind of impressive um on on how uh on <coughs> on how much they did take into account um in terms of like do like things resolving in ways that that like are logical and not kind of like game logical um uh, also the the combat system is incredibly complex i haven't dipped super deep in, into like super optimizing it but i think that's part of the replayability pitch is like you could turn up the difficulty and like you know really have to like consider everything like i i could i can't tell you the number of times that i've accidentally sent electricity into a pool of blood and shocked everybody um uh without realizing it or whatever yeah. Um, but all those interactions are there and it's really cool. And at kind of like the, I'm playing at like this normal difficulty level. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of like half paying attention to it, but I'm getting more into it. And I feel like on a different playthrough, I'd want to crank the difficulty up and really get deep into kind of like the, 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 the melee tactical decisions there. That's uh, cool. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I felt some of that stuff in my first game. Uh, when I when I played through the original Divinity Original Sin, so I feel like that that that's a big draw. I mean, it's one of the, my favorite things about XCOM, to be honest with you, right? Like I like I like you know, I don't know, uh, like blowing a hole in a building to give my sniper line of sight on a guy, and then you know you know like that kind of yeah. stuff is great. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I think I'd mention is I played um, what's the name? I played a little bit of Dauntless. It's a game that's in a uh, kind of early access right now. It's a mon monster hunter type game. Um, it's it's still a little janky, um, just because it's like it's like super early access. Um, it's gonna eventually be free to play. I bought one of the founders packs because why not? Uh, and it's it's neat. Um, I feel like it. I feel like it needs a bit more polish before I recommend it to anybody. Like, it kind of feels like you just run up to the monsters and wail on them. Um, I think what it's kind of aiming for is kind of like that like a, a raid boss feeling maybe i'm just <coughs> excuse me not deep enough into like the uh the kind of monster tree to get to some of the more difficult monsters but like you know all the monsters have mechanics and you have to play around those while dealing as much damage as you can with your own weapon um which in, in a lot of ways reminds me of of raiding and it's 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 neat that way um i am looking forward to its full release because it's, it's gonna it's gonna be a freemium model but uh uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to giving that a shot as well as, you know, Monster Hunter World whenever that comes out because Sony's pushing that real hard. Um, but I, I, I am actually excited for Monster Hunter World. Uh, but yeah, I think that's all I've done in, in gaming this week. Oh, there's one thing I wanted, I wanted to mention. Um, I saw um, the Castle of Cagliastro, Hayao Miyazaki's first directorial film. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw it both the sub and the dub um, on different days. Um, I liked the dub so much that I went back for the sub, and the sub was better. Um, I actually kind of want to sit down and do like a, like a, almost like a video or something that's like it's the sub versus the dub of Castle of Cagliostro, because they make a lot of like, like there's a lot of choices in there that I think like you know that the sub is just better, but they also make some like weird choices that don't need to be there that don't like make a lot of sense to me, like just like little things like, um, like a uh, like. Uh, they mention that in, in the dub that ca like, so the core plot of the film is that there are a bunch of these counterfeit bills, um, that are being produced and, uh, our hero 
is trying to figure out the mystery behind them. He's a thief, so he probably just wants to steal them or something. There's there's a lot more that goes into it. But like one of the things they mentioned in the dub is that counterfeiting isn't illegal in this in this country, this tiny country, Cagliastro. Um uh but they don't mention that in the sub. And I was kind of like, and it's not necessary, right? Like, it, it, like not being in the sub to me signals that it was never, like it wasn't in the original Japanese. It's like, why did they make that decision? Why did they feel the need to like include that, uh, include that little detail? There, there was a lot of kind of like, we explained this thing, like, or we made this thing like very explicit too. Like in the sub or in the sub, they're like, like uh, the, the, one of the characters loads a, a very large bullet into his gun and is like, this shot will take him out because the t- cars and the tire ahead of them are uh, are bulletproof. Um, and then in the stub, he makes sure to, he's like, I'm going to shoot it with my armor piercing around. Um, and it's like, what, why are you why are you adding this level of D? It's, it's very interesting. I, I think I'm going to try and get my hands on a copy of both the sub and the dub and write down the differences and may- maybe try and do a full treatment on it because it was, it was fascinating to me the things that were different for like no no real reason. Um, and some of the things that were different that, um, I think significantly changed the tenor of the film. Like, um, there's this big speech in the middle where the, the main character Lupin, um, talks to uh, a princess and in the dub, he talks about how he's her knight in shining armor. Um, but in the sub, he talks about how he's like, uh, the gentleman thief that's going to steal her away from her evil captor. Um, and he is a thief, right? Like that sec- like the sub version is much more appropriate to the character, um, as presented than the dub. And I feel like it really changes kind of the tenor of that conversation. Um, and I, and again, I, I just kind of, I, I kind of want to dig into that, see if I can maybe find something like find an interview somewhere where he explains why he did that, but, or like, well, why, why, uh, why like the dub people decided to change that? Cause it, it's very weird to me. Um, but it's a very good film. I'd recommend it. Um, it is the 50th anniversary of the Lupin manga. Um, uh, I have seen very little other Lupin, but I kind of want to check it out now. But uh, if you're going to go see it, I recommend the sub. It is was in theaters for one night only, so you unfortunately can't see it in theaters, but you can find it somewhere. Um, it is a famous film that there is that you could, like, you could probably get it off of Amazon or something. So Yeah, fair enough. I went to see four movies yesterday, actually. Oh, man. I started in... Uh... I started at about 4 p.m. with a movie called Wind River, uh, which is written and directed by a guy named Tyler Sheridan. Um, Tyler Sheridan's been on my radar because he wrote Sicario, uh, which is my favorite film of 2015. Um, and uh, and then he wrote last year's Best Picture nominee, Hell or High Water, uh, which is like the bank robbers in West Texas movie that we talked about, which is also very good. And this is his – it's not technically his directorial debut. Like, he directed, like, a low-budget direct-to-DVD kind of Saw knockoff. But, like, this is his, like, actual – you know, like, this is his, like, real – now that he's kind of transitioned to, like, thoughtful, nuanced guy or whatever. Um, and it was actually quite good. I mean, the, the story follows um, essentially a professional hunter uh, who works for, for like, uh, the, the wildlife, whatever, you know – fish and wildlife service uh and he goes out and he hunts uh like he's a professional hunter like hunting like wolves or mountain lions that are like killing cattle in wyoming or anything like that um and during one of these he he comes across um uh he comes across uh the raped and murdered body of a native american girl from like a nearby 
uh, reservation called like the the Wind River Re Reservation, and it's just like it's one of those. It's like a true crime story sort of thing, right? It's like a like a procedural along that way. Uh, but it's actually really cool in that it subverts a lot of the kind of true crime like tenets. Like there's not a lot of twisting and turnings in in insofar as the plot goes, right? Like there aren't really red herrings. It's not like there are kind of like detailed mastermind murder clues. Uh, or any, you know, like anything along those lines, right? The biggest thing is just that there's there's like no people out here and everything is so far away, right? By the time that they leave and come back to the crime scene, right? 12 hours has passed and that's a lot of time for erosion to take its toll, right? And like all of these kinds of things that you wouldn't think of in like a, like a, like a crime story, right? Or that doesn't typically make it into a crime story. These are the things um, that, uh, you know, like these are the things that, uh, that, that hit there. It's not quite, it's not quite good enough uh, to kind of like rank among my favorites of this year or whatever, but it was, it was, it was very, it was very cool. It was very interesting. Um, and, uh, and I was all about that. And then I had, a, I had a gap in time. So I went to go see Beauty and the Beast. The 1991 version was in the theater for some reason. And I was just kind of like, wow, that's a short movie that I can fill in here. So I watched all of that movie and was only struck by the idea that, you know how there's like that wing of the, the wing of the castle where the beast like destroys everything. It's like, it's like a big metaphor for like his rage and shit like yeah. that or whatever. Yeah. It, it, it occurred to me this time watching it that there's all of this like destroyed furniture and stuff. Does this mean he has like murdered like dozens of his servants and shit? If all of his servants have been turned into furniture and most of the furniture in the castle seems to be anthropomorphic, right? Does that mean that he just just like murdered these people and nobody talked about it i don't, I don't think I'm i, I to think that that's nitpicky I, bullshit but it occurred I, I, to I me. think i don't think that all the furniture is people i think that it's just i don't know my read on that was always like not all the furniture is people and like kind of naturally you use as much living furniture as possible because you're not going to put a person into fucking storage um and so like <laughs> While we see a lot of anthropomorphic <laughs> furniture, that's just because you're using as much... You are using all of the living furniture and supplementing it with extra furniture. And that, I believe, was in kind of like an extra wing, right? So that's where they yeah. that's where they would put, like, the, the non-living furniture. Or Fair maybe enough. I'm wrong, and maybe he's a murderer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. And then there's... Uh, uh, and then I went to see Mother, which is Darren Aronofsky's new film. Do you know Darren Aronofsky? I Requ do. Requiem for a Dream. Uh, I watched Black Swan. Uh, my brother, who is... Uh, the, the, the resident film buff of my family does not like Darren Aronofsky very much. Really? Yeah. What? That's interesting. I That's really interesting. I'm really interested to know why that's the case. Uh, it's, it's basically because my, my brother thinks that Darren Aronofsky is full of himself. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. That's unintentionally really funny just because of what Mother is, like, as a movie. Um I, you know, nobody wants to spoil Mother, and I don't want to spoil it too much, but I will say that Mother is, it's a giant metaphor, right? Uh, which is part of why people seem to not be getting it. And, and uh, But uh, the whole thing is a giant metaphor for, like, the creative process. Uh, and it's specifically kind of like the creative process, like, when filtered through, quote-unquote, artistic genius, I guess. Um, and so there's a certain amount of pretension to Darren Aronofsky's, uh, uh, like there, there's a version of things where you look at mother and you say, well, this is just Darren Aronofsky, like jacking himself off on screen. Right. I, I don't think it's necessarily personal to him. 
right? I think it's more in general, just kind of like a like a like a metaphor for this is what creating art is like, right? Um, but like, there's a person of that that looks at that and says, "Oh well, he just thinks that he's like a like a terrifying." god because you know because because this is this is what he thinks being you know quote unquote an artiste is like which i find hilarious yeah um, I, I watched the not watched the movie i watched the red letter media review of it um and they, they oh, did were, they like it did they did they hate it they, i bet they hated it um they did not hate it but they were not kind to it um they not say it was a piece of trash but they they basically said that they thought like it was um, super pretentious and shit not even like basically oh, like, the, the the metaphor that they talked about was was a different one. It was kind of about a lot of the um, uh, the biblical allusions and that like once you got that, it was just kind of like whatever. They also talked about how like when you're kind of framing things in an allegory, like it appears that he's trying mm. to do. Oh, he um, is. Um, you need to like their, their big their big problem was is that you need to um, like keep the things that are happening in the film real enough that it doesn't feel like that. You don't necessarily feel like you're in the allegory and that, that oh, loose, okay. and they, they, they said about halfway through the film, it just kind of escapes no. to la la land and you stop caring about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is kind of, I, I, in a way I'm almost used to this, uh, th because it's, it's like, it's a very art house film. Um, in a lot of ways uh, that like, this is kind of, this is like the kind of thing that I feel like mainstream audiences don't really see too much of, I guess. Uh, and in some way that I, I don't know why, but people went to kind of see this movie and it got like a wide release and I, and, and everything. But like, this is, this is really one of those films that I feel like really should make its way to the, like the festival circuit first. Yeah. Um, and so, so that there are a lot of people who have seen it and can kind of explain it to the public consciousness for a couple of months before it makes its release after the Oscars sort of thing. Um, you know, if it wins, like if it wins Oscars or whatever. Uh, yeah, it, I, I, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the whole thing is a giant metaphor. So it's one of those things where it could go and it draws on a lot of different things. Um, there's a lot of people who have, uh, like peace, like for instance, there, part of it is also about fandom and like toxic fans, um, and how, uh, like creators and audiences kind of interact. Um, but like all of it, you know, like anyway, point is, uh, I saw that movie. It was fine, I guess. Yeah. So, I also so, think it has that problem that that Red Letter Media has uh, has with it. Mostly, be, but mostly because I think it sets an expectation that this is a, a realistic story. Like the first bit of it is actually pretty straightforward, uh, and it's a little bit weird. Um, and uh, you know, like it's it's kind of talking about like uh, uh, you know, but like. Like, the first set of the story seems pretty realistic, and then all of a sudden it just goes off the wall. Um, and so that, that transition, uh, you know, I think I think hurts it a lot. Yeah, also, uh, something that I could just say, looking from the outside in, is like, um, having heard all this stuff about the movie, it doesn't seem like it's a horror movie, which is how it's advertised. Um, and I think that doesn't do it any favors either. Oh man, do I think it's a horror movie? It's not a horror movie in the same way that it is a horror movie, but it is a horror movie in a kind of um, right, but like, like like this is like <laughs> the the way the mo the ads run, it looks like a traditional horror movie. That's or, true. Yeah, which, which which I think is a a problem. You know, actually, not... I have to say, I think that's a problem too. Uh, also, just because um, 
there are aspects of the movie that really play into kind of horror cliches. Like, there's this whole thing um, where, like, there's this whole thing where, like, blood is dripping down one of the walls. Um, and it outlines a door that you couldn't see in the wall or whatever. But, like, because it's it's liquid, it, it outlines it. And then you look – and then you open the door and there's – you know what I mean? But um, But then behind the door is just a big thing of oil. Uh, for the furnace, and it's like, okay, well, that was that was worth. Oh wait, that, that's that what was behind that because that door's in the fucking ad. Yeah, like yeah. if they play it, like that's like the big reveal. Okay, this is here. Here, okay, here's where I'll actually do some spoilers real quick. That reveal happens about halfway into the movie, right? And it's really in the middle of this transition between kind of like the 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 like the hardcore surreal stuff. And, um, and like, the realism stuff. I, I guess you would call this a magical realism movie. But, there's like, the first half is realism. The second half is surrealism, right? Uh, and, and this door is, is, a, is a big transition uh, to that. But what's down there is, is a big boiler, right? Um, there, oh, sorry, uh, 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 a, big, a big thing of oil for the furnace that's also right next to that door, right? Um, and what ends the movie is Jennifer Lawrence goes down there because she's she's metaphorically the inspiration that creates art right um like they she doesn't have a name but they keep calling her the inspiration it's really on the nose to be honest oh, I, uh, <laughs> the, the red letter media guy said that she was supposed to be like mother earth or the virgin mary uh or that's like all of them well yeah so uh so it echo i mean the the virgin mary stuff is also there because he's also trying to like he's also trying to connect uh, art to religion, right? Uh, you know okay. what I mean? Yeah. Um, but like, you know, anyway. And so what happens is uh, she she uh, opens uh, the, the oil and blows up the whole house, right? And this is actually how the movie starts, is this happening. And this is the cycle. And essentially the metaphor is just like, you know, you get, you get, uh, you get an, insp you get inspired by something. And then um, eventually you create something out of it and your audience devours that thing, right? This, by the way, is a fucking baby, right? It's, yeah, yeah, she, yeah. There's a baby. She gives birth to the baby and then the fans get the baby, tear it apart and eat it, right? Uh, which is also part of the horror. Um, I bet that would have been more horrifying if I wasn't in tune with the metaphor, uh, which is probably why audiences hated this movie so much. Um, anyway, uh, the, uh, and so, but like, and so after that has happened though, after like her baby gets, uh, after her baby gets eaten and she says like, and she's like, I can't believe you just ruined this sort of thing. Um, the audience then beats the shit out of her, which is, that was honestly one of the most horrifying parts because just like the whole fan just starts like kicking the shit out of Jennifer Lawrence and it's just like, oh, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's really brutal. Um, and then eventually she runs away, goes downstairs and blows up the whole house. But, uh, but the artist is fine and he comes down and he, uh, and he grabs her and he takes, and he like takes her heart which crystallizes into a crystal, and that's his inspiration for the whole cycle to repeat, essentially, right? That you know, and and uh, you know, and this is something that I've I've even talked about this on the podcast, right? Um, in a in a certain way where I talk about you know how like when you're planning uh, like a D and D session or whatever as a DM, and you know what it looks like in your head, right? That perfect version is never gonna hit reality in that way because. It, it, because that just doesn't happen, right? You collaborate with people, everything, you know, and, and, and it's going to go off the walls and you have to be okay with that, right? You have to be okay with that imperfection. Um, 
and and just and move forward and kind of get it done. And in a lot of ways, Jennifer Lawrence is that perfect idea in your mind, like being horrified at its own mauling, essentially. Anyway, uh, so I saw Mother, and that was uh, and so that was Mother. Uh, I don't know that I recommend that to people. I don't. I don't think I recommend that to people. I think Darren Aronofsky is a fine filmmaker, but watch Black Swan, watch The Wrestler, watch Requiem for a Dream. You don't need. You don't need this. <laughs> Uh, and then I saw, and then I saw Kingsman. Are we going to do a Kingsman episode? I don't think so. I don't think we've got the time. Yeah, I don't think we got the time. We still have to do Star Wars this month. Yeah. Um, well, it's not. I don't think it's going to happen this month. Ah, uh, uh, fair enough. Um, we still have to do Star Wars. We still have to do. Uh, what's the? There's one that comes out in early October. Oh, Blade uh, Runner. Oh, Blade Runner. Yeah, Blade Runner. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Um, um, okay. The strange so things. I saw. Uh, yeah, I saw Kingsman. Kingsman was, you know, it was fine. Actually, there were some th- some projector problems with mine, which sucked. So I probably got a worse experience of it. Maybe, maybe it would be better. I think you would love this movie. Better. Okay, B- better or worse than the first one? Worse, but worse mm, for. Uh, a lot of people are comparing this to Men in Black 2, right? Men in Black 2 has been criticized for a long time because Men in Black 1 was a very good movie, but instead of building on the original, they just redid the original in Men okay. in Black 2. Um, and in a lot of ways, it falls into those same traps, right? One of the one of the worst parts about Men in Black 2 is that after giving Jay, right, Tommy Lee Jones' character, a really fantastic, like, conclusion to his narrative where he retires, right, um... The first half of Men in Black 2 is all about, you know, you know what I mean? Resetting it's all about him, bring, yeah. yeah re- resetting Jay. And even though, like, there there's stuff happening during that time, and the narrative makes it important for Jay to be around, um, it doesn't make it important enough. And so it really just kind of feels like busy work in comparison and 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 Kingsman has some of those kinds of what well, with, with with Colin Farrell's character Yeah, with Colin Firth's character. I was Firth, expecting that's... I I yeah, I was expecting something kind of along the lines of like Colin Firth comes back to, you know, ha- has been working with the statesman, you know, undercover the whole time or whatever, you know what I mean? And he just kind of seamlessly walks back into the narrative. I think that would have been very appropriate, um but uh, uh and the trailers don't give this away and I'm sorry that I'm kind of giving this away. Um but he comes back with amnesia, and so a certain amount of the story is dedicated to getting him back on his feet. Oh wow, um, really? Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's not, and so, and it's not a, it's not like a, it's not like a game ender, right? Right. Um, but, but at, at really least is... there was like a canonical reason for that in Men in Black Two, right? Like, mm-hmm. like they wiped his memory. Um, uh, yeah, no, that's that. That seems like I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. I feel like I feel like the reason they decided to do that, just kind of from an exterior point of view, is, um. I think people just really liked the character too much from the first movie, and they didn't want to kill him. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely get that. I mean, I think the first movie... I also think... I mean, there's also... Like, most of the problems aren't actually related to this phenomenon, right? Like, another problem that the movie has is that the villain is... Um, <coughs> the villain and the heroes are not interacting for, like, a good portion of it. In fact, they keep cutting away to the villain in the villain's base doing villain stuff, but they do that, like, five times. And, like, that's okay, but it's also a very stagnant thing to do. Right. 
in a, in a lot of ways, like uh, which Valentine wasn't doing. Valentine was always moving, yeah, yeah. and he was progressing his his kind of plan and his plot forward. Whereas uh, in this one, the, you 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 flash to the villain's lair, and it's not like she's getting her plan in place. She's revealing a little bit more of her plan to you, but the plan is already in place at the start of the movie, well before the movie even even begins or whatever. Um, and so uh, it that also feels like busy work, which drags things down. Um, and then on top of it, the stuff with the statesman is cool and interesting um, in the sense that, like, you know, the cowboy riff is great and it really kind of rhymes with the kind of, you know, kooky game James Bond gentleman spy riff for the Kingsmen, right? But getting those two groups together and working together also takes a lot of time and, like, narrative stuff because... The, you know, you know, like that, like that kind of stuff doesn't quite work. They also sideline one of the most interesting of the statesmen, you know, to make a point early on, which sucks because then they saddle you with another statesman who's less interesting, and and you know, like so all of this kind of stuff like boils up to be a like eh, sort of thing. Yeah, uh, um, so not uh, quite uh, bad uh, enough to be a bad movie, but you know. I'm probably gonna see it sometime this week. Let's let's do a, like a, a full thing. Like not a, like not a full episode, okay. but like a full. My, actually, my expectation is that it's going to play a lot like Batman v Superman for you, in that the, there are going to be a lot of flaws, but it plays to your taste so well that you're going to ignore all of them and love it. That's fair. Um, <laughs> I look forward to seeing it then. Uh, uh, but we're way over time, so we should probably yeah, wrap this up. Yeah, for real. Yep, 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 uh, yeah, for real. Uh, if you would like to tell us what you think about uh, Hearthstone or any of these things, Mother. Uh, even the Kingsman, you can email us at podcast at subdurfsplaygames.com or subdurfsplaygames at gmail.com. You can follow us at twitch.tv slash subdurfsplaygames. You can rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, follow us on Twitter. Do all these cool things. We love you. Come back, please. Uh, I don't think there's much else for me to say. Buddy, do you have anything else you want to promote? Nope, I'm, uh, I'm all right. I'm, uh, I'm good. In that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.